Hey everybody, how's it going? This is Hub, and welcome back to another episode of Tighten Up the Defense, a podcast that would likely benefit from a tagline. As I believe I just mentioned, my name's Hub, and I hope you're having a fine whenever the heck it is you end up listening to this. Me? Oh, I'm doing okay. Been thinking a lot about time lately, because it turns out I've been doing this show for a while now. And sometimes it feels like a really long time, and sometimes it feels like it's been no time at all. So naturally, I came back to that phrase that we've often discussed on the show, the quote from Nietzsche via the guy from True Detective, time is a flat circle. A phrase that I have always found at once inscrutable and redundant. Redundant because every circle is a flat circle, it's a two-dimensional shape. If it wasn't flat, it would be a sphere or a cylinder. So in that sense, it's like the phrase assless chaps, where, yeah, if they had an ass, they'd just be pants, so just call them chaps. And inscrutable because, well, it's just a bunch of gibberish. To be fair, I haven't read the original Nietzsche. The only Nietzsche book I read was Beyond Good and Evil when I was in high school, and more interested in being pretentious. I wouldn't say I necessarily was more pretentious back then, but I was more willing to put in the legwork for it than I am now. The main thing I remember from reading that book is, oh, when I'm done reading this, I get to say I read a book by Nietzsche, which is what I'm doing right now. So see, like I said, still pretentious. But as near as I can tell, the quote, time is a flat circle, wasn't in that book, so I'm left without any real grasp of what it means. My suspicion is that at some point, Nietzsche was a contestant on $20,000 Pyramid and was trying to get Betty White to guess the word clock. And he was like, uh, you know, it's, it's time, it's a flat circle, it's got numbers all over it, it's got the two hands, one big, one little, uh, time, it's a flat circle, oh gosh. And then Dick Clark told him time was up, and he had to go home and become a philosopher. So yeah, it's probably something like that. Anyway, we've spent about enough time, which is a flat circle, on that nonsense. Let's get into some different nonsense. Without any further ado, let's... Uh, do this. Today's synopsis rhyme is submitted by Cecilia Hudson. Hulk gets a big delight from every single bite of a big can of warm baked beans. And the full delicious taste of otherworldly cakes Wong can craft has yet to be seen. But if you want true bliss, check out Hub's synopsis, or a yellow treat filled with cream. Thanks, Cecilia. Defenders number 80, May 1980. Once a defender... Which seems like it should have some ellipses after it to indicate that it's a part of the phrase, once a defender, always a defender, but it doesn't, which is why it sounded a little awkward when I read it. Sorry. Anyway, it's written by Ed Hannigan, drawn by Herb Trimpey, inked by Dan Green, lettered by John Costanza, colored by Carl Gafford, and edited by Al Milgram and Mary Jo Duffy. Defensive lineup, Doctor Strange, The Incredible Hulk, Namor the Submariner, Clea, Valkyrie, Hellcat, The Wasp, Yellow Jacket, Nighthawk, and 
Eroica. Previously in The Defenders. Doctor Strange learned of an evil being which he calls the Unmentionable One on account of you wanting to say its name, and I call the Underpants Monster on account of the fact that old people sometimes call their underpants their unmentionables. Unequal to the task of facing this enigmatic menace alone, Steve called his old pals, the Hulk and Namor, to lend a hand, and together the trio of original Defenders traveled to the mystical nonsense high fantasy realm called Tunnel World to try to stop the Underpants Monster from destroying the universe. The heroes soon encountered a mysterious stranger named Arowika, who had six-foot wings growing out of the side of his head. The wing-headed wanderer offered to aid the adventurers in their quest by serving as their guide, and informed them that as this was a fantasy realm, there was, of course, a prophecy. The party began their journey, and after a hard day's travel, they reached a pleasant valley where Arowika insisted they rest for the night. Namor objected to sleeping while in hostile territory, but Arrowika informed him that the valley was guarded by invisible avatars of intellectual freedom called the Naya. Namor was unconvinced, but it proved to be a moot point, as Arrowika prevailed upon the unseen Naya to slip the defenders a magical mickey by casting a sleep spell on them. While his audience slumbered, Arrowika inceptioned his way into their dreams and delivered a Silmarillion's worth of backstory by singing a song. The upshot of this expositional serenade that the wing-headed troubadour delivered Freddy Krueger style was that a long time ago, one of the underpants monster's subordinates, a vulture-headed jerk named Yitit Nedian, created Arrowika's people so that he and his vulture-headed buddies could exploit their labor and generally be jerks to them. They gave their creations giant non-functional wings on the side of their heads as a prank, then made them build a giant fortress called Ogion and forbade them from ever speaking. Things totally sucked for the wingheads, but then the invisible Naya popped into their brains, taught them how to dream sing, and told them about a prophecy that one day a winghead would gain freedom and help some Earth guys beat up the underpants monsters. A little while ago, Arrowika escaped from Ogion and figured that he was probably the guy from the prophecy. Once he finished crooning history lessons into the gang's subconsciouses, Arrowika decided to poke around their brains a little bit and see what made them tick. A quick peep into Namor's noodle revealed that Namor is fucking awesome. Steve's brain proved less interesting, but still a decent read. When he went to snoop in the Hulk's brain, the Green Goliath promptly woke up and reverted to Bruce Banner. Interesting. Meanwhile, back on Earth, the rest of the Defenders had also been having a pretty eventful few days. The Department of Justice had decided to prosecute Kyle Richmond, a.k.a. Nighthawk, for gross financial malfeasance, and until his case was resolved, the affluent avian aficionado was banned from any and all superheroic activities. Hooray! Some civilians named Amber Grant and Ruth Hart asked Valkyrie and Hellcat to help them locate their missing friend, a precocious preteen named James Michael Starling, and his pal Diane. Val and Patsy agreed, but found themselves understaffed and without transportation, so they called up Patsy's buddy Janet Van Dyne, a.k.a. the Wasp, to help them out. The Wasp picked our heroes and their clients up in an Avengers Quinjet, and off they went. A whole mess of complicated nonsense happened, but the salient details are... Everyone ended up in Las Vegas, and James Michael turned out to be kinda sorta a super-powerful bioorganic space robot who murdered a whole bunch of other space robots and nearly blew up the Earth, but then at the last minute he blew himself up instead. Bummer. During the course of their battle with the prepubescent space robot, the Wasp's jet was destroyed, so she called her husband Hank Pym, aka Yellowjacket, aka Ant-Man, aka Giant-Man, aka Goliath, aka Inspector and Sector, to come pick them up in the Avengers' spare jet. 
An hour or so later, Hank pulled up and Ruth, Amber, Patsy, Val, and Diane piled in and headed back to New York. On the way home, Hank spotted an Air Force base in Colorado that was under attack, so they swooped down to investigate. After dropping Diane, Ruth, and Amber a safe distance away, the rest of the gang leapt into battle and found themselves fighting two distinct and equally well-developed teams of supervillains, Mutant Force and Fem Force. Mutant Force was a team of male villains who were former members of the short-lived incarnation of the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. Their roster consisted of Lifter, Peeper, Slither, Burner, and Shocker, each of whom had distinct appearances and abilities that related to their names. Also, Shocker had lobster claws for hands and feet for some reason. Femforce was a group of women whose names, powers, and abilities we never learn. Mutant Force quickly captured Yellowjacket and took him back to their secret headquarters. Hellcat, Valkyrie, and the Wasp headed back towards the plane to give chase, but Ruth and Amber intercepted them and led them into an ambush, where they found themselves surrounded by heavily armed members of Femforce. Hurt and confused by their betrayal at the hands of their friendly acquaintances, our harried heroes asked Ruth and Amber what the deal was. Amber explained cryptically that all would be clear when they met the boss. Val and Patsy were handcuffed and Janet got stuffed into a jar with holes in the lid and they were taken to the combined headquarters of the forces Mutant and Femme. The boss in question turned out to be Mandrill, an incredibly problematic humanoid baboon who dresses like Doctor Strange and could hypnotize women with his pheromones. Mandrill asked Val and Patsy if they loved him and they were like, yup. Then he asked the same question to the Wasp, and she said yup as well, only she was lying. Because Diane, who thankfully was too young for Mandrill's pheromones to affect her, had covered up the holes of Janet's jar so that she too was unaffected by the spores. Mandrill told Valkyrie that she was now in charge of the army, and everyone went to bed. Later that night, Wasp and Diane snuck out, jumped into the jet, and flew back to the nearby Air Force base. On their way, Janet used the radio to call in some reinforcements, but the Avengers and the Fantastic Four were busy, so she jumped immediately to what should have been her 6,000th option, Nighthawk. Damn it, Janet! Kyle explained that if the DOJ found out that he was doing any superhero stuff, it would jeopardize the livelihoods of thousands of Richmond Enterprises employees, and it would be wildly irresponsible for him to do so. And that he would be there in a few hours. Fucking Kyle. Back in Colorado, Mandrill learned of Janet and Diane's escape. Acting on his behalf, Valkyrie ordered Femforce and Mutant Force to hop into the weird convertible tanks they apparently had, and she and Patsy led them in a charge against the Air Force base to recapture the Wasp and Diane. Gadzooks! Why didn't Janet and Diane use their jet to head to a location farther than a few miles away? How will the original Defenders react to Eroica knocking them out and invading their dreams? And after having typed the words, Damn it, Janet! Will I ever get that song from the Rocky Horror Picture Show out of my head? Stay tuned to find out! Okay, so... I have no idea. By losing their previous apprehension and fully trusting him. And I guess we'll have to wait and see, but right now it seems pretty unlikely. There's a flame in my heart and you fan it, Janet. Kyle takes the fancy new Nightwing suit his tech company has been working on out for a spin. It's pretty fancy and has a bunch of lasers and missiles and shit, and also has some one-fourth size scale model replicas of Wolverine's claws built into the gloves. I feel like this might be the way to go for Kyle. You know, 
ripping off more popular heroes with smaller, legally dissimilar versions of their equipment. Like, he could get a Captain America shield the size of a frisbee, and a little flaming tricycle, and a magic ball-peen hammer, and, I don't know, maybe some really short, torn purple jorts. I mean, it's worth a shot. The nice thing about being Nighthawk is, you really got nowhere to go but up. Kyle's tech guys tell him that his suit needs more testing, but he tells them he's sure it's fine because it's expensive. Then he tells him not to use his name because he doesn't want the government to know he's doing this. So, I guess wearing a garish costume with his signature yellow bird-shaped emblem on the chest is his version of being stealthy? Yeah, that sounds about right. After doing a few loop-de-loops, Kyle starts zooming towards Colorado to answer the wasp's call for help, startling a farmer as he does so. While the wasp and Diane await Nighthawk's arrival at the Air Force base, a colonel assures her that she has nothing to worry about. After all, the base is very heavily armed, and many of the attackers are going to be, quote, only women, unquote. Hey, colonel, first of all, fuck you. Secondly, fuck you again for good measure. And C, this invading force has successfully raided your base at least twice and stolen all the gold that you had there for some reason. Plus, they just added two bona fide superheroes to their roster. So, maybe taking them seriously as a threat might be a good idea. The bizarrely optimistic chauvinist colonel launches a barrage of mortars at the approaching convertible tank things, but to little avail. Undeterred by the explosions around her, Valkyrie leads Femforce and Mutant Force into battle, and they start just whooping the shit out of the Air Force guys. Wasp joins the fray and avails herself admirably, but the victory of Mandrill's forces seems all but assured. Peeper, the giant-eyed member of Mutant Force who has supervision, by which I mean his vision is super, not that someone is watching over him and directing his action, Although I guess both Valkyrie and Mandrill are kind of doing that. So, yeah, I guess he has both kinds of supervision. Good for him. Anyway, Peeper makes a FaceTime call to Mandrill to let his boss know how well everything's going. Mandrill warns his underling against overconfidence, and has a couple of members of Femforce who hung back from the raid bring Yellowjacket into the room for him. Oh man, I hope they aren't just going to discuss their shared interest in manipulating and abusing women. No? It turns out Mandrill just wants to smack Hank around a little. Hooray! Back in New York, Clea is bored. She spends a page lamenting the fact that she doesn't really have anything to do in this issue. Then she takes Aragorn, Valkyrie's flying horse, out for a ride so that she can get a little exercise. She wonders absentmindedly what Steve and the OG Defenders are up to right now. Well, Clea, what Steve and Namor are up to is sleeping. And what Bruce Banner and Arawika are up to is wondering aloud why Bruce isn't sleeping, despite those friendly brain goblins the Naya putting a sleep spell on him. Arawika asks Bruce what gives, and Bruce is like, Well, and this is just wild speculation on my part, but I seem to recall that a couple of issues ago, my alter ego the Hulk fought a silvery space barbapapa, and it fiddled around in his mind a little bit. Maybe that has something to do with it? It's weird, because normally I can't remember what goes on when I'm all hulked up. Eroika is like, Yes, that sounds plausible. The silver space goo probably worked for the underpants monster. 
And as for your remembering details of your alter ego's exploits, let's just say that the Valley of the Naya is a magical place where anything can happen. It's best not to dwell on how contrived, plot-convenient, and lazily written these occurrences may be, for that way surely lies madness. Yeah. Good point, Eroica. Before Bruce has much of a chance to internalize his wing-headed buddy's advice, an evil army led by one of those vulture-headed jerks Eroica was dream-singing about shows up and starts shooting arrows. Shitty. Bruce is like, I thought you said those invisible mental pixies were protecting this place. What the fuck? Good question. Before Eroica gets a chance to handcraft Bruce a no prize to work around this plot point, he's shot in the shoulder with an arrow. Bummer. But also pretty convenient timing. Eroica is like, Well, that's probably the end of me. You should go wake up your buddies. Bruce is like, I can't leave you alone. And really, they're more co-workers than buddies. Maybe friendly acquaintances? I mean, Namor seems pretty cool, but... ah! That last bit is because he got shot in the leg with an arrow, which is understandably upsetting to the disheveled physicist. And when Bruce gets upset... Yup, you guessed it. Bruce Banner hulks out and starts smashing the shit out of the bird-faced jerk and his minions. Hooray! The evil army retreats, and finally, Steve and Namor awake from their Naya-induced slumber. Hulk rushes off to smash the bad guys some more, but Steve uses some kind of spell to call the bounding behemoth back before he beats up the opposing army too badly. Because, despite the fact that this is a war with the fate of the universe at stake, Steve doesn't want the evil tyrants who have been enslaving and torturing Eroica's people for hundreds of years to get hurt. I guess that would be going too far. Once he's sure that his murderous enemies are safe, Steve turns his attention to his allies and starts patching up Eroica's wound and treating it with some local herbs. Eroica's like, I bet the Naya told these plants to grow here so that I'd be okay after I got shot hanging out in the place that they said they were protecting. Gosh, those guys are great. They think of everything. As Eroica extols the virtues of his unseen mental pixie friends, on a nearby mountainside, the evil leader of the bird-faced jerkholes, Yatitnedian, brags aloud to himself that everything's going great and that his army being crushed in battle was all part of his evil plan. Well, I'll say this for the denizens of Tunnel World, they sure do like to look on the bright side of things. Back on Earth, the Wasp and the Air Force guys are getting their butts whooped by Val, Patsy, and the rest of Mandrill's forces. Janet and her allies retreat to an airplane hangar to make their final stand, but Shocker from Mutant Force uses his powers to electrify the outside of the building, trapping them inside. Things are looking pretty grim, but then Nighthawk shows up and starts using all his fancy new doohickeys to beat up all the bad guys. Hooray, I guess. Out of a combination of loyalty and pragmatism, Kyle is hesitant to mix it up with Patsy and Val directly, but then an idea pops into his head. Before it dies of loneliness, the billionaire do well bird enthusiast puts a plan into action. I guess his theory, which as near as I can tell is based on nothing at all, is that an electrical shock will free his fellow defenders from Mandrill's pheromonal control. So he swoops down and picks up Valkyrie and Hellcat, and tosses them into the side of the building that the Shocker had charged up. What a stupid plan. But it works, so maybe the Naya told him to do that. 
Whatever the inspiration for Kyle's remarkable intuitive broad jump may have been, the results are unquestionable. As soon as they feel a jolt of electricity, Val and Patsy snap out of it. Hooray! Filled with rage, they charge back towards Mandrill's base, seeking vengeance on the confoundingly countenanced creep who had so recently held them under his thrall. Unfortunately, Mandrill senses that the tide of battle has turned against him. The shitty fuckwad runs towards the control room of his headquarters and starts poking buttons. Mere seconds before our enraged heroes burst into the hideout, a rocket launches into the sky. Kyle chases down the unexpected projectile, hoping to capture Mandrill, but when he catches up to the rocket and uses his adorable little claws to breach its hull, Nighthawk learns two disappointing facts about the speeding vessel. One, Mandrill has escaped and is not aboard the rocket. Bummer. And B, Yellow Jacket is aboard the rocket. Bummer. Kyle unties Hank and flies him back to be reunited with the Wasp and the rest of the heroes. Valkyrie swears that she will not rest until she has her revenge upon the accursed Mandrill. Then everybody hops in the Avengers jet and flies back to New York. Hey, maybe when they get there, Kyle can swing by the Sanctum Sanctimonious and see if Steve has like a marble of Agamotto that he can borrow. You know, complete the look. And joining us once again via the magic of telephonic communication is my good-for-many-things brother, Corey. Corey, how's it going? Hey, it's going pretty great. How are you doing? Oh, not too bad. It's been unseasonably warm. Well, actually, seasonably warm because it is summer, but either way, I haven't been crazy about it. Oh, yeah, we're on opposite sides of that thing. I love it. Mm. Yeah, you like the hot weather better than I do. Mm-hmm. I got very uncomfortable, so I cut off all my hair and shaved off my facial hair as well. Whoa. Yeah, I look kind of like a thumb, but a much more comfortable thumb, so that's the important (laughs) thing. Well, good. Well, you ready to talk about a comic book? Yeah, I think we could talk about this comic. Corey, what did you think about this comic book? You know, normally in comics like this, where so many things are exploding and there's so much action that it really kind of pulls you along and is entertaining. And despite all of that happening, this wasn't as compelling of a read as I thought it would be. Yeah, I know what you mean. It feels like a filler episode, despite the fact that it gives a seemingly very hurried up conclusion to at least one of the storylines. The pacing in this thing is weird and kind of frustrating, I found. Yeah, yeah, I think that's that's probably it, the pacing. Yeah, like the whole Mandrill and Femforce and Mutant Force storyline gets really condensed and seemingly more or less wrapped up, although you get Mandrill escaping, which means that we'll probably see more of him, which I could do without. So on the one end, it seems like there's a lot happening, but... Really, the whole interlude in Tunnel World, nothing really comes of it. We don't get anything new out of that, really. And the fact that there's a whole page of Clea being bored, which is maybe honestly one of my favorite pages in the book, (laughs) Mm -hmm. but the fact that they're like, and here's a character who isn't involved in either of the storylines and doesn't have anything to do, let's hang out with her for a page, is really weird. Yeah, this did feel like a bit of a placeholder issue where Mm -hmm. I guess they wanted to explore 
sexism and mandrill and all of that. And so this is was their way of doing that. But it does feel like, you know, the, their plane is flying along. They see some shit and they stop and they have a big fight. And then it goes back to business as usual. Yeah. And I want to get back to what you said, too, about them wanting to explore the idea of sexism and feminism and mandrill. They did such a bad job doing that. They're like, well, we put uh, Gloria Steinem's name in there, so we're good. Yeah, like, I think it is a purportedly feminist issue. Like, I think the takeaway we're supposed to get is maybe, oh, Mandrill shouldn't have tried to manipulate women, and the Air Force people were wrong to think that women aren't strong. But what the plot in the story is telling us is the women who are the heroes are easily manipulated and then they need to be rescued by a man, specifically Nighthawk. Mm -hmm. And you have the Wasp saying, I wish Hank were here. He'd come up with a plan and know what to do. And it just kind of sucks. And even Kyle at the end where he's like, you know, I want to get a look at your face, Mandrill, before I let Val punch it in. It's like, come on, man. Yeah. It's not like your choice of who she gets to beat up for having brainwashed her. <laughs> yeah. Across the board, it does a really bad job of that. And you also still have happening, too, the idea that Steve has picked the cream of the crop of the Defenders, the most powerful members, to take with him on the really important mission. And what a coincidence, that happens to be all of the men who are listed as Defenders. Mm -hmm. And then the less powerful members just happen to all be women. Mm -hmm. Who knew? Because Nighthawk wasn't a defender at the time, and they still needed to call him out of reserve because the two missions that the women have tried to do by themselves have been failures. Yeah, this idea of like exploring sexism and pointing out its problems but failing at it is reminding me of, um, gosh, when I was in maybe second or third grade, we had some assignment to draw something that had to do with like what was going on in the news or whatever. So me and my buddies got together and we drew this like super epic like war, like battle scene with an aircraft carrier and airplanes and things exploding and everything. And the teacher's like, um, I think it was like we we're supposed to be talking about nuclear war or the arms race or something. And so at the end, then we we're like, oh, right. So we put in a little thing that said stop nuclear war. <laughs> <laughs> the bottom like corner of this epic battle scene. That's kind of what this comic is like. Yeah, a whole story about how awesome war is that then has a tiny disclaimer at the end that says, in conclusion, war is bad. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's very much the equivalent of that. That being said, there are definitely things to talk about in this issue, one of which, for good or ill, and spoiler, I think it's kind of for ill, the return of Nighthawk. Mm -hmm. What do you think of the return of Nighthawk? And, uh, we could put it in sartorially speaking, but uh, he his new outfit, I think, is a pretty major plot point in this. It's got more guns. It does. It has shoulder-mounted laser guns, which every time it actually shows them, they look really incongruous and like they are just kind of sticking out out of nowhere and like he would be bumping them into shit. You also see that he is trying to be clandestine and, man, that dude is the absolute worst at having a secret identity. Yeah, he doesn't understand how it, how it works. Like, he says, 
Oh, careful, guy. Don't call me Mr. Richmond on our intercom while I'm doing this. But, I mean, the government already knows that Kyle Richmond is Nighthawk. He's, the guy is flying around in a plane that says Richmond Enterprises on the side of it. Mm-hmm. And it's a brand new costume that you have designed since you know that you're not allowed to adventure as Nighthawk. Is that like a load-bearing logo? Why do you have to have the Nighthawk logo on the front? Yeah. It completely defeats the purpose of having a mask. It really does. It's like, just put some tape over it, you know, or something. Yeah, he does make some tweaks to the outfit, but one of them is that he makes the eye holes bigger, (laughs) so it's less of a mask, and more of a, like, performative mask. Like, it sticks out more on the sides. It looks like the kind of a mask that, like, a very wealthy person would wear to one of their secret sex parties, like the the (laughs) elaborate masquerade balls, Mm -hmm. you know, from like Eyes Wide Shut and that shit. And so I wonder if maybe he just had that lying around and was like, ooh, incorporate this into the costume. Yeah, that'll be hot. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Also, I've got these pastry claws. Put them on the knuckles. Pastry claws. I was thinking they were like those those meat shredding claws. That, mm. You know what I mean? Yeah, I do. I think you could use them for either. I think either way, he definitely got them at Kitchen Caboodle. Mm-hmm. Yep. Had them like attached to his dish gloves. Which he probably also got at Kitchen Caboodle. Yeah. Kitchen Caboodle, if you're listening. Huh? Mm. Sponsor us. Think of the sales bump. From all our listeners who want to be cool, just like Kyle Richmond. It is also weird to me that the dude bought the Hulk an entire Barca lounger made out of adamantium for no goddamn reason. But now that he's got little claws coming out of his hands, they're titanium. Come on, buddy. Mm. Just repurpose part of that chair. The Hulk's never sitting in it. Yeah, I don't know, maybe he's worried about Wolverine comparisons. Yeah, he's not going to come out well in that comparison, Mm -mm. but they're kind of inevitable because he's a character in the Marvel Universe who just decided to add little claws that are a quarter the length of Wolverine's coming out of his knuckles. Yep, but now he can, like, if it goes badly, he'll just be, well, these are just titanium. Uh, Just a built-in excuse. Clearly a screw-up on the end of my techos, despite (laughs) how much I pay them. Man, that was the other thing that, like, he clearly doesn't have an understanding of the way that the world works, where his technical guys are like, hey, you should test, you know, your suit's functionality before using it in battles. He's like, no, that's okay. I pay you enough. I'm sure it's fine. (laughs) Like, oh, my God. Part of what you pay me for is my discretion in these matters. And I'm telling you, we should test this. Yeah, it's such idiocy. Like, I mean, I get it. He's a he's not good at his job as the leader of like some science company. Mm-hmm. But anybody who's had any exposure to anything being built or created over time <laughs> knows that it's not going to just work perfectly out of the box the first time, no matter how much you've paid for it. Right. Mm-hmm. If you're developing something and uh, he, he just doesn't get that. Yeah. That being said, his new costume does seem to work pretty well so i guess good although i still do not understand why he was the choice to come to the rescue i honestly think what would have made way more sense story-wise even 
is to call in Clea. Yeah, she's on the bench. Yeah, and clearly the writer wants us to remember that he was going to have her join the team before there was like the two-issue interruption where there was a different writer on and like Val and Patsy ended up going off on their Las Vegas adventure. I appreciate that he's like, no, it was my plan to have Clea be part of the team. Then why not have her be the character that gets brought in? Then you have an excuse to have her in the book, and you already have a built-in excuse to not have Kyle in the book because the government has banned him from being in the book. And that lasted for what? An issue and a half? Fuck that guy. Yeah, he is not good at... Well, I guess... Like, you could make the argument his heart's in the right place, right? Somebody's like, hey, your friends are in trouble, go help them. But Mm -hmm. he's just so bad at making, you know, good choices. He is. And it also clearly is not about him helping his friends. It is about him showboating and showing off for himself, which is why he makes sure that he has the Nighthawk branding all over his outfit when he goes into battle, and also why he doesn't just call somebody else to the rescue. Like, he could have delegated to someone who would do a better job. Again, and another thing that he should have learned in his business life that he's just not good at. Mm-hmm. Like, what about Moondragon? I mean, I know she's kind of over it, Because she took off before, but, like, she could have come back and helped things out. Oh, she could have come back. He could have called Moon Knight, who he had a rapport with. He could have had both. Yeah, he could have had both the Moon people come and help him out. (laughs) Yeah, or Luke Cage, who we know is a hero for hire. He could have hired him to go do this. Mm -hmm. He had options, and he did not take them because he wanted to fucking showboat. And the other thing that he wanted to do was startle a farmer. (laughs) I had a note to myself that, like, I said, is early plowing a hallucinogen? I think it must be, I guess, because the scene is so much a nod to that scene that you see in a lot of old movies where something unusual happens and an old drunk will see it, will rub his eyeballs and throw his flask away and say, never again. This is an old farmer who's like, I'm going to have to give up early plowing. Like, does he just crumple up his tractor and throw it over his shoulder after that? I know, and he even needs the money, he makes a point of saying. Mm-hmm. Boy, I don't care how much I need this money. I got to quit this early plowing. I'm starting to see things. Which is a ridiculous assumption for him to make because he lives in the Marvel Universe, so he knows that there are people who can fly. They're rare, but not unheard of. So that would be if, like, I was walking thinly and I saw a helicopter and was just like, well, that's it. I'm never walking my dog again. I'm starting to see things. And then threw Finley in a trash can. Man, it's a good thing that hasn't happened. Yeah, hasn't happened. (laughs) No, (laughs) but it is kind of the equivalent to that. Like, it's just like, yeah, there's flying people and you're plowing. Yep. I don't know why you're making that connection. Yeah, I almost wonder if uh, the creative team had recently seen one of those movies where old drunken prospector gets confused and like, oh, yeah, that's a fun thing. Like, We should throw that in. Yeah. I don't know why they wouldn't just have like an old drunk person throw their flask away if they want to have that moment, though. 
what did you think of the tunnel world part of the story? Um, not much. I mean, it was nice to see Hulk get back to his Hulky self and do a good job smashing the bad guys. Yeah, for a little while, until they told him not to smash them anymore. Until Doctor Strange uninvitedly jumped inside of his head and started scrambling his brains again. Not cool. Yeah, speaking of people who are jumping inside of other people's heads to scramble their brains, Eroica. There is a very odd exchange that he has in which he once again points out that, well, now that I've Freddy Kruegered my way into your dreams to deposit exposition after making you magically fall asleep, now you know that you can trust me. It's like, wait, no, what happened was you did all that shit, also told us this was a safe place to sleep and no one would attack us, and then people attacked us. Why does that end with them all being like, well, it's nice to know that we can trust each other now? I didn't get that either. It seemed, yeah, like all signs point to this is not a good idea. Also, Aeroica? More like Aerodeica. Oh, didn't. Yeah, because he gets shot with an arrow. Mm-hmm. Because he was so very wrong about that being a safe place. And then also tries to, like, tone correct Namor. Like, Namor wakes up and is just like, I tried to warn you that we shouldn't just go to sleep here while there are enemies around. And he's like, yeah, but when you said that, you were very suspicious. It's like, yeah, and correct. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those like a... He keeps trying to get back to like his side of things where Doctor Strange is like, oh man, you're lucky that there's so many medicinal herbs and stuff around so I can put them on your wound. And he's like, luck has nothing to do with it. The Nia put them here. They're, you know, this is a special place. I feel like he's one of those people who is just like, see, everything worked out just the way it was meant to. And it's like, no, you made other people work harder because you were wrong, and yes, things did work out, but it's not because of your vision, it's despite it. He's like a very bad manager or business owner in that regard. Oh, God, that argument drives me bonkers. I had that um, with my mom in the past, where, like, I don't know, I'd pay a bill for her or something, and she'd be like, thank God this money came in. I was like, dude, (laughs) no, I literally (laughs) did this thing. And it would have been so much easier for me if you had listened to me when I said, (laughs) please do this thing so I don't have to do this thing. Yes. Oh, so frustrating. But it seems like that is kind of Aroika's stance. And I also had to wonder whether that was what was going on with the bird-faced bad guy who is, I guess, related to Yitit Nidian, who is leading the army against our heroes because he sends the army against them the hulk smashes the shit out of them steve is like come back here before you kill them all which i mean that's an army that you're fighting that's a weird stance to take steve but okay but then the leader of the bad guys is just like oh the hulk destroyed my army good everything's going according to plan Mm -hmm. is he doing that thing where he's just like well, this'll work out fine either way. Uh, I guess maybe everyone else will have to work harder because of my decision, but whatever. Or does he have some kind of a dumb Rube Goldberg evil plan that is set into motion? Like, 
I had never thought about the overly complicated evil plans that the bad guy reveals. Oh, that was all part of my plan. I had never looked at that in the context of them being like a bad business owner or manager who is like maybe just really gotten into Tony Robbins and is embracing the power of positive thinking. So even though their evil plan has been thwarted, you know what? Things are working out the way that they're supposed to, you know? Yeah. And so speaking of Rube Goldberg devices, I was trying to piece together and maybe it was something more obvious that I missed where Vulture Dude says that the name of the unnameable has been implanted in the brains of Steve and Namor and Hulk. No, it's just in Hulk's brain. Just in Hulk's brain. Okay, and and how did it get there? It was when he was fighting the army or No, it was when he was fighting the Silver Blob guy. Oh, that's that's what caused it. Okay. Cuz initially I was like, wait, is this tied to Arawika making them fall asleep and then Freddy Kruegering them? Did he like leave a something that the vulture guys could exploit to get things into their minds but no okay it was the barba papa fight scene that did it yeah it was the silvery space barba papa i mean for all of Eroica's faults and he has plenty i don't think we have reason to believe that he forgot to collapse the dream tunnel into the hero's heads on his way out okay well that's that's good at least that's one thing he didn't mess up and mm-hmm. not admit you ever see that movie dreamscape Many times. Oh, man. I hope he didn't leave that tunnel open because the last thing those guys need is... Creepy Snake Man? Creepy Snake Man or Dennis Quaid just hopping in there <laughs> and fucking around. Yep, nobody nobody needs that. No. I don't want any Quaid mucking around in my head. No? Not Dennis, not Randy, not the guy from uh, Total Recall. Was he named Quaid? Oh, gosh, I can't remember. I feel like he was. Anyway. No quades in my head. That's the sign that I have outside of my bedroom. Wow. That's, well, it's about as effective as a dream catcher. <laughs> Better safe than sorry. <laughs> yep. Now I want a specially made dream catcher that just says no quades on it. <laughs> or like a mobi- uh, mobile? Mobile? What do you call those things? You could get yeah. like little cutouts of all the, the quade faces and <laughs> hang, it, hang it from it. With a little circle and a line through each one. Yeah, but like with the little net thing too. Right. No, I think that's a really good idea. Mm-hmm. Thanks. Man, we really got to get cracking on that merch. There was another kind of incongruous thing about the end of the issue for me, is you have Amber joking as they are about to head home. Like, hey guys, maybe we don't stop and fight anyone else on their way back to New York. And they all have their, like, end of a sitcom freeze laugh on that moment. Mm-hmm. I mean, she is on her way home after a character who was essentially her adopted son eviled himself to death. Like, it is wild that she is making quips about the wacky misadventure that they just had. Yeah, it seems um, this thing that happens, I feel like, where there is a lack of continuity about the emotional impact of what all these characters have gone through from issue to issue. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's also possible that if you are a superhero you are, or live in a superheroic universe, you are just constantly in a state of shock and unable to process how much has just happened. Because with the time compression that happens in comics, it seems like everyone is constantly in a state of having 
the most eventful three months that has ever been, you know? Yeah, yeah, that's true. It makes me wonder what the downtime is like. Well, you know, you uh, you hop on your flying horse, you have a stroll around the city, and you think about how bored you are. Yeah, yeah, I guess so. Because it's been, for Cleo, what, three days since she traveled to another dimension and then lit a mansion on fire? Yep. Super bored. Guess I'll just take my flying horse for a ride around the city. I know. Ho-hum. Ho-hum. Yeah, flying horse. Even though I'm not super comfortable with horses, that would be pretty cool, I think. Yeah, I'd... I wouldn't get on it, but, like, I think the idea of it is cool. <laughs> like, maybe if it was, like, I don't know, tethered in some way, so it would be like a pony ride. <laughs> you know? Like, it could go, like, ten feet off the ground Maximum. and round in a little circle. Yeah. I think that would be okay. Yeah. I don't think Aragorn would be crazy about that, though. No, no, you can't tether tether an animal like that. No, nah, man, it's like trying to put a saddle on a tornado. Mm. I did really enjoy the exchange between Hank, Pym, and Mandrill, where uh, Mandrill <laughs> just smacks the shit out of him. <laughs> man, Yellowjacket comes across like such a bonehead in this whole story. It is really funny that he's just like, oh, you're lucky these guys are holding me back. And Mandrill's basically like, guys, stop holding him back. And then just punches the shit out of him. Yeah, that was a good slap scene. It was like an open-handed knockout blow. Mm-hmm. I mean, in Hank's defense, he had apparently just been drugged. But uh, still. Do you resent my little game? <laughs> Smack! <laughs> Pretty good. Yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong, Mandrill is still terrible, but uh, I dug that. I also wondered to what extent when Nighthawk uses his titanium pastry claws to rip open the side of the rocket and sees that it is Yellow Jacket in there and not Mandrill. Hank's like, disappointed? I wonder if for even a second Kyle was just like, I could just fly off and say there was nobody in there. Oh, did they not get along? I thought they were good buddies because of their sexism bonding, or whatever you call that. Yeah, they probably are. Well, was there anything else you wanted to talk about before we get into the minutiae? No, I think we got most of it. All right. Well, Rick, would you mind singing us into the minutia? We got minutia. It's not the biggest part, it's just minutia. Like Corey eating farts, we got minutia. Time to sweat the small stuff. Thanks, Rick. Thanks, Rick. So, Corey, what do you want to start off with? Well, this is usually, I feel like I have to pare down the sartorially speaking bit. I didn't really have that with this issue. There was only kind of one thing that I noticed, so maybe we'll just get through that part first. Sounds good. Yeah, we already talked about Nighthawk's new uniform a little bit. The one aspect of it that I don't think came up was the slight modification of the emblem on his chest, where now instead of going out towards his arms, it still looks like the hawk has arms, but it's just like waving them in the air like an upset Muppet. <laughs> upset Muppet arms. Mm -hmm. Yeah, other than that, the farmer had a nice polka dot neckerchief. Yeah, that's the only thing that I had. In fact, I didn't really even note it as polka dot. It looked to me like it, you know, was kind of dusty and sweaty, so like really dirty, but that um, it was a leopard print ascot. I can see that. Like the kind that maybe you could see uh, 
Vince Neil turning into a do rag. Right. Yeah. Exactly. So I thought it was like, wow, that's a <laughs> that is a unique look for an early plowing farmer. Yeah. Good for him. Mm-hmm. I agree. I, I think that is a nice look for him, and that was also the only thing that I noticed sartorially. I mean, other than that, I think almost everyone we see is in uniform, either a superhero uniform that we've seen before or a military uniform. Mm-hmm. Yep, which are well-rendered, but not remarkable. Mm-hmm. I did notice that we get a new inker on this one. It's Dan Green, and there are a lot of characters that are wearing sunglasses in a kind of menacing way in this issue. And I'm wondering if that is his touch or just that more of the story takes place in the Southwest. But it was something that I noticed. Mm, Yeah, there was a fair amount of uh, sunglass wearing, but not on peepers. (laughs) No, sir. Gosh, you would need some big sunglasses. Well, you know what? That actually does segue us into our next category. Behold or be gone. (laughs) Okay. The question I'm putting to you, Corey, is if you could have any one of Mutant Force's powers, but to go along with it, you also had to choose one distinctive aspect of a member of Mutant Force's appearance, be it Peeper's giant peepers, Shocker's lobster claws, or Slither's snake torso. Do you want to behold or be gone? Hmm. I'm gonna say that although I don't have plans to do any criminal stuff or hero stuff per se, it probably would be useful to be super strong, and Lifter isn't, like, you know, freakishly large compared to other humans. Okay, here's the thing. You have to take one of the distinctive aspects of their of appearance. So, like, I mean, yeah, I would take super strength if I had to have Scorcher's weird little mustache. But I think it has to be one of the things that I mentioned. You either need to have the giant eyeballs of Peepers, and, like, so you could be super strong, but you have to have Peepers' giant eyeballs, or you can be, like, super slithery, I guess? But you have to have Shocker's Lobster Claws, something like that. Oh, I see. Wow, I that, that puts me in the weird place of probably saying I'm going to pass on a superpower. Because hmm. I just don't know that that would be super useful. I guess if, if I did have to choose one, I would probably choose Shocker's ability. Because, I mean, that'd be just kind of cool to be able to electrify stuff. Mm-hmm. And which distinctive uh, feature would you choose? I would choose um, the fuchsia leggings and navy blue boy shorts over them that <laughs> Lifter has. Do I have to wear that all the time, though? I think if you choose that, then yes, you do have to. Oh, man. All right. Well, <laughs> I guess that uh, would cut down on decision fatigue, like I know what I'm wearing every day. That's true. If anybody gives me too much trouble, zap. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, gosh, uh, Lifter's abilities are very tempting because not only is he super strong, but he also can apparently manipulate gravity to an extent, which we saw in the last issue. I might take those, and if I did, I think I would go with Peeper's giant eyeballs. <laughs> I mean, 
They wouldn't necessarily look like Peeper's eyeballs because I've got pretty nice eyes. It's a good feature of mine. So, I mean, if they were just really big, I think I'd look kind of like an anime character. And uh, that might be interesting for a while. I wonder if, I mean, they would have to be giant if I'm taking them. I think they have to be totally round, too. They can't be, like, normal eye-shaped. Do they have to be lidless? Yeah, well, yeah. I, I can't have eyelids? I, I don't know. Does Peepers have eyelids? Maybe he Peepers just... doesn't have eyelids. I mean, they're not visible, but maybe they're, like... Retracted, right? Like maybe he's literally just got his eyes peeled at all times. Ugh. Yeah. Although honestly, it might look creepier if he did have eyelids, because then I think he would just look like Garfield. I was just gonna say, just like a Jim Davis character. Yeah. Ooh. I don't know. I mean, I think it'd be worth it. <laughs> be able to pick up some pretty heavy things. Oh man. Manipulating gravity seems like that would be. Pretty sweet deal. Plus, I mean, I could just wear some giant blue blockers all the time. Man, if we both had those powers, we might actually need to start doing something with them. You mean something criminal? Well, I don't know, just something. <laughs> Maybe some of each. Then it kind of yeah. balances out. What would be a useful thing we could do with super strength, gravity manipulation, and electricity powers? Hmm. I feel like we just have to be roadies. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah, maybe to get to see some cool music for free. I guess. It seems like it's still a lot of work. It is not free because you're working, yeah. Yeah. Okay, I'm giving it a be gone. <laughs> Me too. Down with work. Boo! What was your favorite sound effect? Ah, uh, this issue was rich with sound effects. There was a little uh, violent exchange between... Uh, Possessed Val and Nighthawk that I enjoyed, and it had two really great sounds in it. One was him really ineffectually drop-kicking her. I liked that, too. Which made the noise punk. <laughs> <laughs> and then her response to that was whacking him senseless with the flat of her sword, which made the noise boing. I liked that a lot, too. The punk specifically it has that rare combination of seeming both very dynamic and also very ineffective. I enjoyed that, and I think that's a fair summary of Nighthawk's character, dynamic and efficiency. Mm -hmm. I also really liked on the previous page, there is Nighthawk plowing through mutant and femforce alike, and there's a series of sound effects that is zoom, pow, chuck, crunk. I thought that was pretty fun. I also really liked on page 27, Mandrill turning the safety valve that is kind of the device that's saying, you sure you want to use this escape pod? Mm -hmm. And it makes the noise, sure, click. And I thought that was kind of fun. Mm -hmm. Yep, very evocative. Mm -hmm. But ultimately, I think I'm going to go with Val and Patsy getting electrocuted when Nighthawk drops them into the electrical field and it makes a noise, Pazak! Yeah, that was very zappy. Mm -hmm. I'm going with Pazak. God, this is going to come up later, but what a stupid fucking thing to do, even though it worked. Yeah, it doesn't make any sense as a plan. Ugh. Well, you know what? Uh, let's bring that up now. 
Every issue of a Defenders comic book has a best defender and also a worst offender. In this issue, who was your mm, worst offender? Yeah, so I did want to give it to Kyle just based on the things that we've talked about. However, I did have to take into account outcomes. And if we're just looking based only on outcome and, you know, the ends, not the means, I guess Kyle would would come out pretty near the top. So I felt like that took him, I guess, out of the running for worst. But that did leave Yellow Jacket, who basically got captured, slapped, and then imprisoned and used to enable Mandrill to escape. So he did terrible. Still mad at Steve for not utilizing Clea or the other female defenders. Mm-hmm. Um, and also for getting in and mind, uh, what's the word I'm searching for? For talking inside Hulk's head without without Hulk's permission. Mm-hmm. That's not cool. Stop doing that. Yeah, just non-consensual mind fiddling, basically. Yeah, yeah, I don't care for that. So those things in mind, I think I'm just going to go with Yellow Jacket. I think that's a fair choice. I had a really difficult one narrowing this down to one because for various reasons, almost all of the characters in this are eligible. Initially, I was actually kind of leaning towards the Wasp. Uh, She didn't do a great job in the fighting. She also decided at the end to either not tell Valkyrie and Patsy what the deal was with them being controlled by Mandrill and seemed to forget about it herself because she rushes back to fight Mandrill and Val and Patsy rush back to fight Mandrill. And if he had been there, he would have just taken them over again. Like, they don't have any inoculation against it. It didn't make any sense. And especially, I believe Wasp had even said something like, oh, if Mandrill comes here, he'll take me over. But then she decides to go to him and tells Diane, you did a great job, but you're just a young girl. You better stay behind. Despite the fact that Diane is the only one who has any immunity towards him. It just didn't make any sense. Yeah, that's a good point. That would have fouled everything up. But yeah, really, all of them did a bad job. Kyle happened to be right on all of his bizarrely lucky guesses about what was going on and ways to remedy it, but that doesn't mean it was good decision-making. He was like, they seem to be acting out of sorts, like they're mind-controlled. I know, I'll electrocute them. What the fuck, dude? Seriously, I guess he just figured since they're super people, like, whatever would kill normal people won't kill them. But that is a hell of a assumption to make. Yeah, and it's also troubling because it's not like there's no precedent for privileged men deciding that the women in their lives were acting irrationally and that that could be cured with electrical shocks. Also, it's honestly just really bad writing how quickly he assessed the situation once he arrived. Shocker and Burner zap at him, and he's like, The big bruiser Shocker must have created that force field, some kind of an organic dynamo, I'll bet. He must maintain the field with his body's chemistry. That gives me an idea. What? Why why do you think that's the case for any of that? That is very lazy. Yeah. You know, in terms of... I guess just exposition via Kyle making an impossibly correct guess. So, yeah, I was tempted by all of those, I and I almost went with the Wasp, but I think 
in terms of just doing the all-around worst job, I'm giving it to Eroica. He just fundamentally misunderstands the concepts of trust and safety, and also is ridiculously eager to just be a martyr. Like, he gets shot with the arrow once, and he's like, well, you should just leave me here, and I'll die, and that's fine. You guys should escape. It's like, wait, no, you got these guys together because you know how powerful they are. The Hulk doesn't just defeat those guys. He defeats them easily, and there's no threat to him. Steve could have done the same. Namor could have done the same. Like, why are you so eager to just curl up and die at that point? Yeah, good point. Yeah, so for that and for, yeah, just being like, well, now that I've fucked with your brains and encouraged you to fall asleep in a place where an army was about to attack you after specifically telling you you were in no danger, I'm sure that your concerns about my trustworthiness can be laid to rest. He just does a very bad job. And that after doing all that, Namor shows up and is like, I'm glad to see that you're still alive, Eroica. Did I not warn you that we must be vigilant? And Eroica's like, you did, Namor, though in a somewhat more suspicious state of mind. Dude, not the time for that. Yeah, and especially because his suspicions were, it turns out, pretty well founded. Yeah, it, it's just like tone policing. It's like, well, yes, you were right, but I don't like the way you said it. So yeah, I'm going with Winghead here. Uh, Eroica, I think, was the worst offender. Conversely, who did you have as the best defender? Right. So as we mentioned, if we're going on outcomes alone, it would probably be Kyle. But it's just, there was he took too many risks. So mm -hmm. I'm not giving it to him. I guess based solely on that, I think it was Mandrill who said that the battle turned in a matter of minutes. And uh, that appears largely attributed to the fact that Val came back into full possession of her faculties and just kicked so much ass that basically defeated the entire army. Just for that, those few minutes of really good fighting, I'm going to give it to Val. I think that's a solid choice. I actually decided to go with Clea. It's a smaller moment, but I really like that she recognized that, you know what? I'm feeling depressed, but... I need to get out and still live my life. She actually said something that is very, very salient. I'm going to withhold that because I think it is going to be my pie not made out of steel. But her attitude of, you know what? I'm going to treat myself. I'm going to just go for a little ride on my flying horse. Things don't seem like they're going that great, but I still need to get out there and live. And so her recognition of the importance of inertia, like... Yeah, if I just want to stay in and stay depressed, then I could do that, but I'm not going to. Mm -hmm. It can be very difficult to motivate yourself when you're going through something like that, but she did, and good for her. Absolutely. Yep, that's a good choice. Thank you. And now let's get to the pie not made out of steel. What words did you like best in this issue, much like you would like a pie were it not made out of steel? You know, it's funny, I think we, we may have some shared dialogue here, but before I go with the bit that I think won, I did have a just a short little one, and it's Yellow Jacket on page 7, it's just sounding like such a dummo when he gets woken up and, and Mandrill shows him that Wasp is captured, and he says, J-J-Jan, that's Jan on screen! <laughs> like, no shit, man. Like, oh, I get it, you're groggy, but... Well, I mean, he's also pretty drugged up at the time 
he's in the K-hole, you know? <laughs> so he's pretty out of it. Mandrill gave him a whole bunch of special K, and he's freaking out. So I'm going to give him a pass on that. But yeah, that is pretty funny. It did crack me up, but he just, what an idiot he sounded like. But yeah, to your earlier point, I think it's page 10. Clea has a good little run where, like you said, she basically tries to shake it off and um, get on Aragorn and go for a ride. And as they're getting ready to take off into the sky, she says, No, no, by the Vishanti, despair is too ignoble a preoccupation. If I am denied the sight of my loved one and friends, still, I am alive and I must act accordingly. So very wise and uh, kind of appropriate in these times. Yeah. If I am denied the sight of my loved one and my friends, still I am alive and must act accordingly. Yeah. Yeah. Good job. Yeah, that is my favorite. Uh, For a backup, I had an exchange between Valkyrie and Hellcat that I believe we made passing reference to, but it's on page 26. It's right after they have been shocked back to their senses. And Valkyrie is like, the mandrill, he used us, used us. I swear by Hela's dark legions, he shall pay. But first, his lackeys. For Valhalla! And then Patsy says, right, and Gloria Steinem. Yeah, I love those couple panels, and especially, like, the battle lust, I guess, on Val's face. <laughs> She's saying that. She's got the little spit, you know, between her teeth, and her eyes look very enraged. I know, I had to check and make sure that it wasn't Sal Buscema drawing this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But no, it, it's a, it, it is a very Sal Buscema expression that she has. She has the mouth trapezoid with the stalactite spittle, and it was a very evocative panel. And I love that right after um, Passy says, right, and Gloria Steinem, Lifter says, uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> What was your favorite panel in this issue? Well, we didn't see nearly enough of Peeper, but what we did see on page seven was was pretty classic. His eyes are so big, and he is easily, I think, the goofiest-looking character that we've come across in this series, so I appreciated seeing him. Um, Wait, 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 wait. I don't think you can say he's easily the goofiest in this title when we have Aroika appearing in the same issue. I think you could say that maybe Peepers is the goofiest, but Aroika is in the conversation. And there's also Chandu, who has those chicken legs, eel arms, and unicorn horn. Yeah, that's that's fair. That's Man, you can get used to a lot. <laughs> Good point. Gosh, what are we, only issue 80? Oh my god. Yeah, oh, incidentally, Corey, uh, it is our five-year anniversary of doing the show this week. Holy shit, really? Yeah, Facebook reminded me. I posted the first episode of Teen Titan Wasteland five years ago from a couple of days ago. My goodness. Well, happy anniversary. Likewise. And you're right. It's amazing what you can get used to. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. Okay. So that said, that, that wasn't my favorite panel. My favorite one is, is kind of a weird one because there's no people in it, but for whatever reason, it really resonated with me in the sense that it pulls you into the story with a, a kind of a cinematic bent, and it's on page three, and it's the series of explosions after the military has fired their warning shots. Mm. And it like really reminded me out of something from a, a movie with a military scene where 
that's just a thin panel going all the way across the page with a series of, you know, these impact explosions and the sound effects thum, 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 for each one. Yeah, I thought that was really, really well done. Oddly, my favorite panels in the issue also had no characters in them. It's weird, and it wasn't those ones either. I gotta say, overall, I really liked the art in this issue. I think Herb Trempe is continuing to do a very good job, and Dan Green is on the inks in this one, and it's great. Just really nice work across the board. But my favorite panels, I think, were on page two. There is the display of the view out of Kyle's goggles, and I just really liked that. It reminds me of like an old 80s video game. Everything's laid out in an infrared grid, and there's all of these like altimeters, and I like that there is a clock. It's not even a digital clock. There's just a clock up in the corner. Mm -hmm. But I thought it was really, really fun. There's some kind of a tank fighting old video game that has a similar like layout to it. And I really enjoyed that. The other one that I really liked a lot that I would put maybe as my favorite, we also already talked about. It's the close up of Mandrill turning the safety feature off to launch the rocket. There's a ton of weird little detail on it. It's labeled the auto fire sequence. It says under it, there's a one minute delay before activation. And there's a little arrow showing which way you need to rotate it. And just those levels of detail, I thought were really nice and added something to it. Yeah, I appreciated those also. Very cool. But before we move on from the artwork, I think we do have to mention the cover is like amazing. It's really, really great. Yeah. The um, rage captured on the faces of Namor, the Hulk, and, and even Doctor Strange is, like, scary, almost. The cover is by Rich Buckler, who is a, a favorite artist of mine. And the inker is, I believe, Joe Rubenstein. But yeah, it's really good. Although, it is also kind of generic in that they are apparently fighting an army of devils, I guess? Who have pointy tails and horns and are red. Obviously, it's supposed to represent the bird-faced jerk's army, but I had not gotten the impression that they looked like that at all. Also, I mean, Steve and Namor aren't part of that fight at all, so I, I feel like this cover could have gone on, like, almost any issue. Yeah, but, I mean, that's not really new for us, right? There's always something in these covers that looks awesome and has nothing to do with the story. Yeah, but you're right, it is a gorgeous cover. The way that their faces are depicted, too, it reminds me of just, I guess, because the artist is different of, I don't know, a different series or a different style or, or something. Mm -hmm. It, to me, looks like a different era. It looks much more like 80s artwork than 70s artwork, frankly. Mm -hmm. Every issue of a Defenders comic has one character who has to act out of character in a way that furthers the plot. To paraphrase the Fat Boys from Crush Groove, they just gotta be a sucker. In this issue, who was your sucker? Yeah, so initially I thought, well, it's Kyle because he just did so well after making so many bad decisions. But then I realized that's not sucker material at all. That's kind of par for the course. Just lucking into things? Yeah, just like he should be leaving a trail of, you know, maimed corpses behind with how terrible he decides things. But nope, he's, he's fine and that's normal. So that's not it. And so I had one that also wasn't, I feel, 
like it doesn't fit the category to a T, but it was the best I could come up with. And it was Hulk for listening to Steve immediately when he's in the midst of his battle lost and he's he's taking off after this army that he's just started defeating. Mm-hmm. And Steve pops in his head and is like, don't do that, Hulk. And he's like, okay. And I would expect, I mean, I know that's not like a brand new thing. This has happened a few times in the past, but there's usually at least a little bit of like he calls him stupid magician or, you know, some form of resistance. And we didn't get that here. Right. If not resistance, then at least resentment after the fact. And there doesn't really seem to be either going on there. Mm-hmm. I think that's a totally valid choice. I decided to go with kind of a weird one. I went with the shocker hmm. because he seems to have actually a pretty good attitude in this issue. And I think that is directly in opposition to him last issue when he was really, really resentful of Femforce and thought that Mutant Force should be running things. In this issue, we see Lifter and Slither complaining. Hellcat tells Mutant Force that they're doing a great job, which is maybe a little bit condescending. But Lifter's like, you can spare us the backhanded compliments, Hellcat. Lifter don't need to be prodded into doing his job. And Slither's like, nor does Slither wish to be reminded that the boss would rather have women in charge of this operation. And you see Shocker is just, you know, shocking the occupants of a tank and says, Oh, quit complaining, you clowns. The boss will find out soon enough how good we mutants are. Meanwhile, Shocker is doing his bit. Just like, you know what, guys? Hard work is its own reward. Just keep your head down and don't complain. Everything will be fine. Yeah, that's true. That is pretty out of character for him in the last issue. So, I mean, it's not like we have a huge body of work to base his personality on, but I gotta say it does seem out of character for him to just just be like, oh, don't need to be so dramatic, guys. Just, you know, do a good job and uh, the rewards will come. I would love to know his backstory on how did he get those lobster claws. I'm kind of curious, too, although... With a lot of these characters, the fact that they are mutants kind of is their origin story, more or less. Yep, he was born that way. Still, I do have some questions. Like, can he shoot shocks out of his feet, too? I hope so. I mean, they are lobster claws. Yeah. And therefore, you can shoot electricity out of them. I think that's canon. Well, Corey, we both know that the Hulk rules. But in this issue, what are the Hulk's rules? Yeah, Hulk took a a page from Cleo's playbook in this issue and realized that really just fake it till you make it. Don't give in to despair. Just get on that winged horse and and fly away. If you feel like you're starting to feel bad, you got to take action and, um, you know, just move forward and maybe things will get better. I think that's a good lesson. I had him learning a lesson from the farmer who decided to throw away his tractor and stop early morning plowing because he saw something unusual. And the lesson that the Hulk took away from that is, you know what? Correlation does not equal causality. Yes, you saw a flying man while you were plowing your field. That doesn't mean that you saw a flying man because you were plowing your field. So... The Hulk saw that, and you know, he's like, you can't just go around throwing away tractors like that, like I assume that farmer did. Bad job, guy. I guess the secondary rule would be, hey, tractors are pretty expensive. (laughs) Good point. So yeah, correlation does not equal causality, and hey, tractors are expensive. That's uh, sage advice from our green friend. 
Sage green advice, one could say. Uh, I mean, we could rename the category that. Sage green advice. That's pretty good, actually. <laughs> yeah, I know. I like the Hulk's rules, but uh, that's not bad. Yeah. They have really different vibes, like rules, R-O-O-L-Z, versus sage green advice, you know? That's a different feel. Yeah, one se- the, the latter seems like it should be, uh, like, the Hulk, like, having a soothing cup of chamomile tea and, like, uh, sitting you down for some words of wisdom. Uh, the other one is more extreme and in-your-face and more like, I, I always envision them being, like, the, uh, PSA at the end of an episode of G.I. Joe, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, whereas the Sage one's more like a something out of an NPR podcast, I don't know. Yeah, it's like a NPR versus WLVI Kids Club type of thing. And I think we tend to gravitate more towards the WLVI Kids Club side. But NPR, if you're listening, <laughs> we are available. Yeah, we will host a show as the Hulk called Sage Green Advice. <laughs> Well, Corey, I have but one final question I must put to you. In the year of our Lord, 1980, and the month of our Lord, February, what Wong doings was Wong doing? So, Wong, as he has in the past, experienced a a bit of a premonition, which led him to feel a certain sense of unease. And this is tied to his deep interest in astronomy and in, you know, science in general. And so he was talking to Steve about it over dinner one night, and Wong had been following progress with research that NASA was doing that had to do with launching a satellite with some measurement equipment on it called the Solar Maximum Mission Observatory to study solar flares. But he was afraid that this mission was not going to be successful because of this premonition that he had had. And that immediately piqued Steve's interest because Steve, as eagle-brained listeners will recall, has more than a little interest in flame ghosts. And Mm. what better source of flame ghost action than solar flares? So after Wong had retired for the evening, Steve uh, dialed in his eye of Agamotto and put a little bit of a mystic webcam and a bit of extra successful energy around the launch of the Solar Maximum mission, the SMM. And it did indeed successfully launch and go into orbit and take over 240,000 images of the uh, solar corona before its ultimate fiery demise many years later, once Steve had lost interest (laughs) in December (laughs) 1989. Wow, very interesting. Well, that is one Wong doing that Wong was doing, but it wasn't the only thing. See, before Steve had left for his little Tunnel World adventure, he left a few notes for Wong about looking after the place. And so Wong was left with some extra duties to attend to. Clay, in fact, mentions it in this issue that Wong is off taking care of some of his own personal business at this point. It's not so much personal as it was an errand, but one of the notes that Steve had left behind said, Wong, look into Abscam. So Wong started poking around, and uh, Abscam had been a government sting operation led by the FBI to look into corruption of politicians who had been taking bribes. They set up a fake company that was called, I believe, the Abdul Corporation. And so the Ab 
Scam was a combination of Abdul and Scam. And they got a ton of very high-ranking politicians caught taking bribes. But they didn't release the information on all of that until February of 1980. And that was due to Wong exerting some political pressure because he believed that Steve really wanted that information. It was, I think, six members of the U.S. House of Representatives, one U.S. senator, a number of state senators, the mayors of a couple of cities in New Jersey. This is pretty extensive. And so Wong got this huge stack of paperwork and he brought it down. And it's like, man, there's a lot of work to get all that. And they ended up having to release it to everyone because of this. But here you go, Steve. And Steve was like, what? No, Wong. I wanted you to buy a camcorder for Namor to film his abs. An abs cam. <laughs> I can't do anything with all this paperwork. Now look into getting an abs cam. And there you had it. <laughs> nice. And that's the Wong doings that Wong was doing in February of 1980. Namor, of course, did eventually end up getting an abs cam, and it's been his primary source of income for the past few years now. Well, Corey, thanks for joining us. It's fun to talk to you about this oddly paced, not particularly successful issue, I gotta say. Yeah, likewise. We'll be back next week to talk some new Teen Titans. But in the meantime, if you listeners would like to get into touch with us, Hub and Corey, we can be reached at Titan Up the Defense, P.O. Box 20311, Portland, Oregon 97294. As this is the future, we can also be reached electronically at ttwasteland at gmail.com. If you would like another way to get into touch with us, well, we're all up in many parts of the internets, social medias and whatnot. So, you know, just type uh, Titan Up the Defense, that's T-I-T-A-N, into your web browser and see what the fisherman brings in today. Could be our Facebook page, could be the Instagram, who can say? But have fun with it. You know what? Treat yourself like Clea. Mm -hmm. And if you can't find us in any of those ways, then there's probably something wrong with your computer, and you should toss it over your shoulder and throw it in the trash. Or you could just look inside your heart, because that's where we'll be. That's where we've always been. Hanging out in your heart, thinking good thoughts about you and yours. Your what's? I don't know. Maybe your scissors or your uh, tape. I'm just looking around the room right now. Oh, okay. um, I don't know. We're just hanging out inside your heart. It's nice there. We like it because you've got a big, warm heart. It's a little bit warm for me, but Corey finds the temperature just right. Pleasant. Mm, I find it a bit balmy. Is that what that means? Uh, balmy means it's nicely warm, pleasantly warm. Oh, no. I, I find it too warm. Muggy. M oh, yeah. I find it too Muggsy. Just without the S. Yeah, I know, but I like Muggsy Bogues. And I like your heart, so there you go. <laughs> if you would like to contribute to the show monetarily, you can do so by visiting us at patreon.com slash ttwasteland. If you do, you get access to a whole bunch of bonus material. The monthly show, What the Duck, a podcast most foul, but with a W, because he's a duck. That's the full name of the show. That's the Howard the Duck podcast that I do with my wife Lisa where we take a look at 
Steve Gerber's 1970s Howard the Duck comics. And there's also a bunch of video reviews of classic comics up there and some other podcasts. There's hours and hours, literally probably hundreds of hours at this point, of bonus material for you to check out there. So if you donate, you get exclusive access to that. But mostly, donating is just a really nice way for you to let us know that you appreciate what we're doing and would like us to continue doing it. If you would like to support the show non-monetarily, it's a bunch of ways that you can do that. Just uh, tell a friend, tell an enemy, tell a loved one, tell an inanimate object, uh, tell Siri. Just tell everybody, whether they're listening or not, whether they tell you to shut up or not. Just keep talking about tighten up the defense until somebody hits you, and then you can sue them, and then you can support us monetarily. See, it just keeps going in a circle. Or you can leave us a review someplace. It's probably the easier option there, and, and then you don't have to get hit. But, you know, if you wanted to leave us a review on a place where reviews can be left, like, uh, you know, whatever platform you're using to listen to the show right now, I think that would be a very nice thing for you to do. A recent review says, Hub and Corey deserve all the whiskey. Five stars. Couldn't agree more with you there. Wow. Thank you. This is one of the most entertaining podcasts I have ever listened to, and the dynamic between Hub and Corey reminds me of myself with my favorite brother. Oh, Aww. that's nice. Corey, you're my favorite brother. Yeah, likewise. And that is from Rahima D. Thanks, Rahima. That's rad. So yeah, it's just that simple. Just uh, say wonderful things about us and uh, imply that we should have more whiskey than we do. And uh, yeah, that's the way it goes. So thanks for listening. And don't forget, when you get a new costume, make sure that it's got a special mask that you use at a fancy rich person sex party. That's not a good catchphrase. Oh my god. It's too long. Yeah. Uh, so keep your pastry claws sharp and made of titanium. Oh, that's good. Would titanium be a good thing to make pastry claws out of? I don't see why not. Is it stainless? I don't know. There's a lot I don't know about titanium, Corey. I feel like I may have misled you in the past. Oh, man. Okay, bye. Bye. <laughs> drinking i am drinking a non-caffeinated blood orange soda water ah good call you're a little loopy last time <laughs> i have both of them so i'm worried that like i i'm kind of tempted to just mix them together uh half calf no i'm saying like mix the packaging together and just get get like a uh caffeine russian roulette game going with myself <laughs> roulette <laughs> uh-huh oh my is that not how you say it i've always heard it roulette but oh if it is French, I guess roulette means roll. I think the difference would be roulette is the game where you spin the wheel and it's red, black, or green with all the numbers and the marble drops in one. Mm -hmm. And roulette is like that, but it is an egg-based condiment.
That's Remulod. Remulod. Oh, fuck. I always mix those up. Roulette is when Justin Wilson plays roulette. <laughs>